you know, I, I don't know. I've never directed. I've never had an ensemble do the piece. But I would be shocked if the ensembles who've done Vinegar Tom haven't found themselves really rallied by this this song at the end of the play. script listeners welcome back to no script the podcast an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts i'm jacob man christensen and i am jackson nikolai welcome back everybody we're thrilled to be back and we say that we are back as we do every week because we're back from not releasing a conversation for a week so it's been a week since we released a conversation and we're back but we're also back from the depths of magic month the depths indeed we have been uh talking about plays that involve magic over the last month of podcasts so if you missed those and were excited about them and just suddenly missed them for some reason there's still on there you can go back and look at them but for now we're moving forward back into kind of our regular scheduled programming with an assortment of plays by people with no uh necessarily through line theme that's right and and we've decided to ease carefully back into the world of (laughs) non-magic related scripts uh perhaps too carefully we probably could have made an argument to do this script during magic month although there's no real magic in it uh but in honor of our transition away from Magic Month in honor of last week being Halloween, we are talking about Carol Churchill's play, Vinegar Tom. Yeah, Vinegar Tom by Carol Churchill. This is the second play by Carol Churchill that we've done on the podcast. The first one was Mad Forest, if you remember. I think it might have been all the way back at season one, if I remember correctly. It was a ways ago, though. It was a while uh, ago that we've done a Churchill play. It's exciting to be back. Carol Churchill mm -hmm. is a wild playwright. You read her plays and you never know what to expect. You don't. I'm excited to get to talk about it. But first, I do want to take a second and just thank all of you who have headed over to patreon.com slash podcast. As many of you who know, who have been listening to the podcast know, we have a Patreon account over there. And that Patreon account allows you, if you have been listening to the podcast for a while and are looking for a way to help out and keep it keep its longevity going for you to support the show over there at no script or at patreon.com slash no script podcast we have a number of different tiers of patronage for you to be a part of making this show continue on because though it is a labor of love for jacob and i it is alas not free there are hosting fees and script fees associated with producing this podcast so if you are looking for a way to help out no script the podcast head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast and we will see you over there Yes, we will. We are just so grateful for everybody who's been over there. And now, back to the script. Back to the script. Vinegar Tom is a 1976 play. It was written, I'm not sure quite if it was a commission or just a collaboration, but the Monstrous Regiment Company uh, worked with Carol Churchill through a whole rehearsal and development process to create this script. It was presented in October of 1976. I don't know if they were doing a Halloween thing, uh, but it, that certainly is possible. We're visiting this script just in the early November right after Halloween, so you can certainly see where that may have come from for them. And it, it's since then been produced 
produced uh, probably a lot by educational theater more than anything else, as, as a lot of Carol Churchill's works, especially her lesser known works, are done. Um, we know that there were some productions in San Francisco and Massachusetts, but not a lot of major name recognition for this one. It's a really awesome script. It comes to us as the recommendation of one of our listeners who suggested that this was her favorite Carol Churchill play. So we, we were excited to come and visit this one, but that's a lot of the context around it. It's It's been around the bend for a while now, 30 years, 40 years actually, uh, just over 40 years. So it's it's getting up there in terms of its age in, in plays, but it has a lot of really timely things to say, I think. It's also worth noting that this uh, the 1970s-ish when this play was written was kind of right in the middle of the women's civil rights movement in England, and Carol Churchill was a huge part of that movement, and this play speaks a lot into the themes of that movement as well. So it's it's worthwhile to just kind of keep that in the back of your head as we're talking about this play. We'll see how much we uh, bring it up directly, but that is some of the social context in which it is set. That's right, and as Carol Churchill was writing this play in the 70s, she was actually working on another play at the same same time for a different company called Joint Stock. Uh, that's when she wrote Light Shining in Buckinghamshire. And, you know, if you read both of those Carol Churchill plays, you can see the similarities of material and time frame and 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 context that was developed. And, and Carol Churchill has some really interesting things to say in interviews and author's notes about how developing both of those plays side by side, how much they share, where she tried to make them different. That's an interesting task for a playwright to be developing two plays at once. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So so, so jumping into the synopsis of the script, we like to synopsize the show real quick for any people who have not necessarily read the play, um, though you will get much more out of a conversation if you have read it. I do want to just kind of give you the high points of the play. I'm going to jump over scene one real quick and just kind of generally say this play is about... Um, a, a small community in rural England um, and uh, their interactions as one family in particular begins to accuse people of uh, witchcraft. Uh, there's a number of people in town that uh, begin to get pointed at and uh, take blame for uh, various maladies <laughs> around the town. Uh, the two people who do most of the accusing are Jack and Marjorie. That is the family. The, the They don't have a last name or anything like that. Um, but Jack and Marjorie are the family unit that are accusing mostly Alice and Joan of witchcraft. Um, their, their, their evidence is they have a... a some of their livestock dies. Uh, Jack is attracted to Alice and uh, blames her for that and uh, has... Uh, <laughs> we'll get into some of the specifics, maybe, of what exactly he's going through, but he believes that his... Uh <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, he believes that it is to do with Alice cursing him for it. Um other we, notable- all right, we won't, we won't tease it that much. <laughs> he's, he's having some erectile dysfunction, and it, along with all the other maladies in their lives, they've decided to blame it on the witches. Okay, that's what we were laughing at. There you go, at. there you go. Don't need to worry about it. <laughs> you knew it was coming. Um, <laughs> other notable characters in the town are Susan, who is Alice's friend, Ellen, who, uh, what's, what's the word that they use? It's blanking out of my mind at the moment. But the they, cunning they- woman. Yes, who is the cunning woman of the community. Um, Kind of a medicine woman or... Um, I think she describes know, herself as an herbalist and a healer. Yeah. That's how she self-proclaims anyway. 
Yeah, she does yep. say she has some powers, or at mm-hmm. least when Alice pushes on her that it's not just herbs and healing, is it? She says, well, if you have power, you can use it in the right way. She's a little bit vague right. about it. And and interestingly, this is getting a little out of synopsis, but people seem to accept her to some degree for that. For instance, Jack and Marjorie go to her to divine whether Joan is a witch or not. But we'll get into that later. Um I, I do want you to kind of hold in your mind the the kind of primary women of the play as Alice and Joan, and Joan is Alice's mother, Susan is Alice's friend, and then Betty is another uh, kind of younger woman who appears throughout the play. She is kind of having these uh, termed by the doctor in the play as hysterical episodes um, that, that people around the town are reacting to and trying to grapple with, and witchcraft gets brought into that as well. Yeah, it's a little bit unclear whether she's really struggling with some mental illness of some sort. There's certainly an argument for that. Or whether it's sheerly based on the fact that she refuses to marry this man that her family wants her to marry. And so she's been locked up and has escaped. And in the heightened community tension of the 17th century witch trials, they immediately prescribe that to the doctor's side of hysteria or the witch side of being possessed or something. Yes. So those are the those are the big characters you need to know about. We'll introduce a couple more that come along as a result of some of these actions, but these are the people of the town that are all interacting together as we kind of jump into the into their lives with this script. So we know that Jack and Marjorie, they're married. They are renters on a farm. In fact, they begin the play uh, deciding to rent some additional land from the person that owns it. We we believe, I think Jackson agrees with me, that we think Betty is the daughter of that landowner. I also think, although I'm not sure this is as much backed up in the script, this might be a little bit of a leap, I also think uh, Joan and Alice rent from the same person, rent their cottage from the same person. At the very least, we know that Joan and Alice and Jack and Marjorie are neighbors. They live just next to each other, so much so that it's talked about that Joan used to come around all the time. They used to be really friendly neighbors, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they, they were, there's a couple instances where both parties say that they were friendly towards each other. Um, both, both Joan and Marjorie claim that friendship. But now it seems that Joan has become a bit of a, a bit of a, a troublesome neighbor. She comes over a lot and asks for extra ingredients or, or uh, yeast is the one that she comes over and asks for at the, at the start of the play. She needs yeast for some bread is what she claims. Right. Joan's husband, we assume Alice's father, has passed away. We know that. And we also know that neither Joan or Alice are real sad about that. Apparently he right. was abusive. He used to beat Joan. And so the fact that he's gone is not a huge trouble to them other than they have a really hard time making money to pay rent, to, ha- to have money for food, even basic things like that. The other thing that we know is that Joan is an alcoholic, or at least that's the accusation made by Marjorie that she's just going to drink away any money that Marjorie gives her. Now, already you've heard us talk for, you know, whatever, 10 minutes now, and we've said we think just a lot. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Jackson, you want to give us a taste of why we're, say, why we're prefacing so much of this with we think? Well, it's, it's a really subjective play. Any, any uh, 
I mean, I, I hesitate to draw too many lines to our previous witch play that we did, but similar to to um, the Crucible. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, the Crucible. Uh, similar to that play, they are that all these stories are being told from perspectives of people that uh, <laughs> you you kind of wonder how much they they are just being too suspicious, or whether they're telling the truth, or whether they're just you know in a state of mind that they're looking for someone to blame for and as neighbors do blame neighbors for it. Yeah. They, they have a lot of opinions about each other and yeah. it's not very clear how reliable those opinions are. And since you brought up the crucible in the crucible, we have the benefit of lengthy and very descriptive Arthur Miller stage directions, pages right. of descriptions of characters, descriptions of what the actual facts of certain scenarios are, the actual facts of what characters think about each other. I mean, Arthur Miller provides so much context for the reader, the actor, the designer, the director, etc. Carol Churchill has taken, let's call it the minimalist approach. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> the zero stage directions approach. <laughs> yeah. It, and zero is yeah. an exaggeration just so we're, you know, but right. but very few. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's precious few uh, stage directions in this piece, which I think is why it, it could be part of why this play is done in academic settings so often because it winds up being a pretty blank slate. Um, still really strong characters, great dialogue, great back and forth, but this this play kind of invites a production team and a cast to uh, to kind of make their own mark on it and make it apply to them and their situation. Um, I'm thinking two of the songs in this play in the 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 script in the appendix of the script includes some music for it, but in the lines of the script itself, there's there's no notes or intonations or really notes that someone should sing some of these kind of poetic stanza piece pieces in the script. Yeah, so there's 20-odd scenes or something like that, and many of them end with a song. And it's not a song like a musical where it's prescribed that a character sings something and they sing something for the purpose of achieving a goal. It's a song like Brecht, where yeah. interrupting the action, there is a separate piece of music. And Carol Churchill notes in some author notes that she includes apparently in multiple versions of the script. I know at least that Jackson and I have different versions, and this appears in both of ours. She has noted that she did not put very many stage directions in there. And so she tries to make clear that not only are these songs not supposed to be sung by characters or as part of the scene, it's not a musical, but additionally, the songs are intended to be sung by people in modern dress. Mm -hmm. They're contemporary pieces of music. These aren't old English folk hymns or anything like that. These are contemporary pieces of music sung by people in contemporary dress. I watched uh, scenes from a production. I think it was done by Duke Theater, the, the theater at Duke College, although I, I apologize if I'm incorrect about that for those of you at Duke University. Um, but it, what I saw there was each of the music pieces was done very differently. At one point, the, the actor playing Jack got out like a microphone on a stand and somebody was playing a piano behind him and he had an amp and it was like an old like bar karaoke or uh, hmm. singer songwriter in a bar type of version of one of the songs I mean and then all of them were different so there are these pieces of music that are separate but not explained in any kind of stage direction right yeah yeah and 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 that kind of welcomes again it welcomes you into setting it into your setting. I too went on kind of a, a YouTube dive for looking for me. Once I figured out that they were actually supposed to be songs, I went on a YouTube dive and 
many different productions have done many different versions of these songs, and it completely changes how the piece is received. There was one that I saw that was like kind of punk rock, uh, early 90s style electric guitar and grunge rock, and that completely reset my image of what this play would be like. Some Another version of the play that I saw had uh, kind of the cast singing them as choral pieces, um, but not as their characters. They'd stand up, step away, and stand to the edge of the stage and sing it all together in this kind of... Uh, almost chorus style typical musical musical way so um well we'll get back to later in our conversation probably what the songs mean how they interact with the text and things like that but we're on right now this idea that the the script is not especially prescriptive i think is the summary yeah. of what we said so far there's just not a lot in it for example scene one right beginning of the play this is all we have to go on a man, just titled Man, and Alice, they're having a conversation. There's no kind of direction about where they are, who they are, how old these people are, anything like that. There's just their conversation. And as I flip through it, I may have missed another small one, but the only stage direction I see in the whole scene is stage direction. He pushes her and she falls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so that scene, so that scene in general, I skipped over it in the synopsis to kind of come back around. Um, it's it's a bit of the evidence that comes out against Alice eventually. Alice is sleeping with a man, and they have this conversation around. Um, the man kind of claims he's the devil, maybe, and then also she maybe accuses him of being the devil. But there's this interaction between them of. Uh, there, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this correctly. They have this. Uh, kind of confusing interaction around this man who says he's seen witches burned in London. He wants to go to London. He wants to go to Scotland. And she asks him to take her with him. And uh, he still ends up leaving after this conversation. Right. So th this is pretty good evidence that Carol Churchill's scripts, and of course all scripts, but, you know, Carol Churchill's scripts are production scripts. Because when you see the play, you, you can see that this man and Alice are probably in bed together. I would guess is how most productions are going to set that scene. It seems to be what's set up by the text. They definitely are coming out of just having slept together for sure. So whether they're having this conversation in bed or at a dinner table, I guess is whatever. But that's where they are. And that that's clear when you're an audience member. You're not missing that. But as a reader, it is a little bit confusing. And Jackson sets up the beginning of the scene, this conversation about the devil, because this is how the script starts. It's I, I think yeah. it's an incredible start. Man. Am I the devil? That's the first line <laughs> of the play. <laughs> it does. It, it grips you right away, but it's still like, I think you're right. It has it has that air of not enough information yet. Like as soon as you're into it, you're, you're, you're engaged. But then I think the next scene, you don't even see Alice or, or the, the man from this scene. So, so the, the people that you're starting to get to know, you don't see right away. So it kind of has the same, we've talked a little bit, kind of alluded to it. It has that alienation effect that we're kind of talking around that the music does where you will finish something and then you'll listen to a song and you'll become a little bit alienated from what's going on so you can re-engage again. That opening scene has some of that as well. Right, because even if you did a really, really fully realized version of every scene and so you had a full bedroom that you moved on stage, which is not how I, I think probably most reasonable theater artists would choose to produce this play. But if you did, even then, and, you ha and the audience had all the setting clues, there's not a lot of character clues. You're, you're still left figuring out who these people are. In fact, I don't believe Alice's name appears in the first scene at all. 
This is just a random man and woman having this conversation after having slept together. We can pick up things as we go along in this delightful clue-gathering mission we go on. We know that they're not married for sure because Alice is, is asking this guy to take her with him. She's not able to get married in this town. She doesn't see any prospects in this town. We know that Alice has a kid. But we don't learn much of anything about the man. Mm-mm, He's a no. traveler, I guess, of some sort. He's been to London, at least. Mm-hmm. We get a little bit of a sense of perhaps where in the world we are in in that scene, but even that's a little hazy because he he just says that he's traveling to Scotland and London. So um, so yeah, that that scene kind of baits a hook for us, and then the next scene doesn't do a whole lot different than that either. We're we're just slowly through these first two scenes, learning which the scene with Jack and Marjorie, and they're trying to uh, they're they're discussing their neighbors, and you learn a little bit more about the community. So we're slowly sussing out more details as we go through it. So in scene one, as you talked about, there's this question posed, and I quoted, "Am I the devil?" And it gets used against Alice. Later on during the witch trial, her friend Susan, who Alice shares the details of this relationship she's having with Susan, uh, describes that Alice re- truly has slept with the devil, is how she puts it, the man in black. And this man at the beginning of the play said, asked the question, am I the devil? Then he says, I am the devil, men in black, they say, uh, met, meets me in the night, took me into the thicket, made me commit uncleanness unspeakable. He's, he's uh, you know... I, I don't think it's the devil, right? Let's start there. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Prob- it's probably see, not that she's sleeping with the devil. It's probably not that. <laughs> it seems like when you're reading the scene, it seems like, you know, kind of uh, arrogant talk, basically, or self-absorbed talk that this guy is going through. It doesn't seem, you know, this doesn't, at least it doesn't read like, uh, you know, Satan showed up and slept with this woman. That's not that's not what I come away from this scene thinking. Um but again, like then then the rumor mill starts, right? So maybe Alice kind of believes it or she says it kind of arrogantly to her friend Susan. And uh, that's that's that gets brought up again at the witch trial. So it's it has something to do with like the rumor of that getting around as well. He's an interesting character. He doesn't appear with lines in the script anymore, just man, as he's called in that first scene. But he he is appear later in description. Alice, through the play, is interested in finding him again uh, at separate times, depending on how she's feeling, either to sleep with him again or to, like, hurt him because uh, she's right. so angry with him. It just depends on her mood at the time. But it, she sees him later on in the script and she tells Susan about the encounter. And she sees him with a beautiful woman in a beautiful dress. And I think when you discover this piece of information, you can look back on this first scene and understand the man a little bit more. His focus in this first scene, am I the devil? He talks about all these, and, and then he, he goes on to describe sin and how, well, when I was in London, there, there are churches who don't believe there's anything like sin. And, and he's, he's obsessed with guilt and his own mm, wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you you can figure out, I think, pr- pretty clearly later on that he's married. He's yeah. sleeping with this unmarried woman who he even ends the scene by calling whore in that kind of traditional uh, man blaming the woman for the act that we just committed, despite the right. fact that it was mutual, despite the fact that I'm the one who was married. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's as as you kind of piece together more information throughout the play, you you begin to get a more full picture of what he is and and 
And also, like, hmm, I'm figuring out how to say this. Also, Alice's relationship with him changes. When she discovers the information, we we see, like, some of the rituals that she's be- become to kind of pretend to practice around witchcraft being directed towards him. And in general, her uh, her acceptance of the narrative of being more witch-like becomes more prominent after she finds out this information about him. Well, yeah, through the end of the play, she maintains that she's not a witch. Through her trial, through her torture, through her mother's hanging, spoiler alert, through all of it, she maintains that neither she or her mother are witches. And yet, I think what you were talking about, Jackson, was this odd scene where this is just after she's seen the man again riding with this woman who she infers is his wife and she realizes he's not really, he's not really single, he's never going to take me away, all of this was uh, behind, you know, all this was a fraud, blah, 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 blah. She, she understands all this now. She's describing it to Susan and she makes a puppet. Mm-hmm. Out of mud. Yeah. Almost almost kind of voodoo doll-esque. And she begins like poking poking this mud puppet with a stick and talking about what kind of curses she's hoping will uh, hit him. And then she kind of blames Susan as Susan tries to knock it away. It falls and the, the, the clay puppet breaks in two and uh, she turns the blame on Susan all of a sudden. Oh my gosh. That scene for Susan, that, that writing and that line that she delivers mm-hmm. after the puppet falls is just terrible. If If you've not read the script or interacted with it at all, I'm going to do my best to set up for you how heartbreaking and beautiful and brilliant this writing is. But it's going to be pretty hard for me to do, I think, um, unless you followed these characters along. Basically, Susan is married and she's pregnant. She's had several children already, has miscarried several times. Now she's pregnant again. Susan and Alice go to this herbalist and healer, Ellen, and Ellen gives Susan uh, the medicine to have an abortion, to have a self-induced abortion. Off screen or off stage, I mean, uh, Susan does it. We're we're not sure whether or not she's going to do it at the end of that scene. Then the next scene we see them and we learn that she has indeed done it, but she feels terrible about it. She's heartbroken over it. She's very sad. And then there's this little scene with the puppet and Alice is... I don't know, we never really settled on anything. Making a joke or playing (laughs) to ill humor or just expressing her own anger or something. Anger and, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But Susan snatches the doll away and she accidentally drops it and breaks it. And Alice, like you said, accuses her of being the one to break it. And then Alice says, look, I was just kidding. But Susan says, listen to this heartbreaker. Little clay puppet, like a tiny baby, not big enough to live, and we crumble it away. Mm-hmm. Oh man, that yeah. that last scene, that line hit me like a gut punch, like nothing else did in this play. Mm-hmm. That's the scene where I feel like we're the least uh, on Alice's side, as she kind of, you know, continues to poke fun and doesn't sense the gravity of of the situation against Susan. Um, th- yeah, that's that's one of the. I, I agree. That's that's like a gut punch there. Let's 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 maybe talk a little bit about why. Why do you think she becomes more open to this line of thought? As you say, Alice um, firmly asserts that she's not a witch. She also firmly asserts that her mom could not have been a witch. Um, she, she, even, even after her mom is hanged as a result of a trial later on in the play, she, she says that there's no way that she could have been that, and and I'm not going to admit to it. And yet, there's there seems to be 
some openness in the middle of the play, at least in some of the conversations she has. What do you make of that that um, that tension or that um, maybe paradoxical relationship she has with the term witch? Well, let's set up some of what that openness is. So let me talk through what I think you're talking about, and then you fill in if you think that I missed some of what you're referring to. So I, I think what you're referring to is when Alice and Susan visit the herbalist and healer Ellen. Uh, at the end of that scene, Ellen says basically they visited because Alice wants to get a love potion to get this guy back. And then ultimately Susan also gets this abortion potion. Um, but so at the end of that scene, Ellen has more or less said, look, here's the best I can do. I'm not sure this is really going to work. Um, you ought to get married. Alice says, I don't really want to be married. That's the other thing Alice is consistent on through the play. She does not want to be married. Um, so... So Ellen says, well, then you're going to need to get a trade. You need to learn to do something. And she and Alice then have a conversation about having Alice come and study with Ellen as a healer. And um, this is the exchange. Um, Learn a trade. Ellen says, learn a trade. Alice, nothing dangerous. Ellen, where's the danger in herbs? Alice, not just herbs. Ellen, where's the danger in healing? Alice, not just healing, is it? Ellen, there's powers, and you use them for healing or hurt. You use them how you like. There's no hurt if you're healing, so where's the danger? You could use them. Not everyone can. And Alice says that she's going to come back. So there's this power element to what Ellen says she can do. And Alice says she's going to come back and learn what's going on there. What's Mm -hmm. the situation with this herbalist and healer and maybe witch. And then later on, she does this thing with the puppet. Yeah. And I think what's what what what's also in there is this um this freedom or independence that comes with it as well. Um Ellen is is someone with a profession in the town that the town respects. Again, we I'm coming back to that again, but the town uh is willing to go to Ellen in her role as this uh cunning woman and uh and and she's a, a part of the community she's there for remedies she's there for some divination purposes as they used in the you know 1700s or whatever um so there is an aspect of that that I think Alice is also drawn to she is she is you know she's in a situation where she wants to get out she's been trying to get out and it's just not working and you know the other option is kind of pursuing this guy who she eventually finds out is uh already married as we've kind of previ- previously discussed so so the the uh the hope that she can kind of be her own person is uh, in a way personified by this pursuit of of Ellen's line of thought All right and and this i think is where the larger points that the play is making about gender and power relations. If you know anything about Carol Churchill, you know that she wrote a play about gender and power relations, no matter what work of hers you're talking about, more or less. I mean, and a lot of what's in this play is this, this deeply rooted ingrained power in these communities that men have to determine and ultimately affect the life and death uh, and outlook of women. And so mm-hmm. Alice is left in this powerless situation. What exactly happened with her son's biological father? We don't know, but they've definitely been abandoned. Her and Joan have been left by the death of Joan's husband, an abusive, powerful man, and they've been left with nothing, nothing that they can do to take care of themselves. And you're right. 
Alice, as a single mother in a community where no one will marry her, which means she does not see a future for herself other than leaving this community, Alice is left with this personification of independence and self, you know, the self-made woman. Ellen has made something of herself. She has, she has a career. People look to her. She's powerful. She's respected, at least until the witch trials begin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then that 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 is an interesting beat as well because you get to see <laughs> Jack is the only beside Jack and the Doctor. The Doctor only has like one scene in this play, so Jack is primarily the only male in this town, and yet Jack still manages to turn the whole thing in his to his narrative. Yeah, when the, the only trial male comes that we town, meet. I mean, I assume there's yes, other families true. in the community, but he's the only other one we're interacted with. And, yeah. you know, we probably should spend some time now talking about Jack and Marjorie since you inserted them so deftly. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and Jack is another example of this kind of man who has just unjustifiable power. He's yeah. he's harsh and abusive to his wife regularly, and he definitely wants to cheat on her. He tries to get Alice to sleep with him a number of times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So so the the their dyna- we we learn this in a couple scenes. The 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 dynamic between Jack and Marjorie is defined by two scenes really. One, they seem to be kind of they seem to be people who want something more from what they have at the moment. We, we get that in the second scene of the play. They're talking about renting another piece of land so that they can afford to live better or live more. Um, and so they're, they're, they're debating back and forth about that and wondering if they should get involved in their neighbors' lives. And then the next scene is Marjorie making butter. Um, which is making in a butter churn. So if, if you can imagine back when you were reading Pilgrim books, um, that's the <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the way that she's, she's working at it, and it takes a long time to churn butter out of cream. So uh, she's working at it, and there's a deadline involved. So someone needs the butter, and so Jack just keeps coming in and berating her for not having it done in time for this 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 need that's coming up. Yeah, she's lazy. She's gossipy. She's not working hard enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so that's that's some of their interaction at least is along those lines to the point that where she like at the end of the scene she she blames she blames the the butter's lack of uh churning on Joan who has stopped by to ask for yeast and curses them by the end of the conversation. Um kind kind of uh there's no like ritual or anything. She just like speaks a curse at them and then leaves. Um she blames it on the on the uh on Joan, and then Jack's line is something like, just keep working, you lazy slut, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's yeah, he's 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 not a great person. Well, I, none of the men in the play are. I'm not sure yeah. that they're, I mean, the doctor might be the one guy who you think maybe is at least trying to do something right, but his scene right. is where he's bleeding a woman because of her hysteria and relating yeah. the fact that she's suffering from hysteria to being a woman because only, of course, women suffer from hysteria is the presumption of the male doctor. So he's definitely sexist, even though, you, I mean, you may be able to make the case that he's at least trying to help sure, in his own he's, sexist yeah. way. Yeah, it buried in in the culture of the time, he's trying to help in whatever way he can. But that's a like <laughs> that's us working hard. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so and, yeah, and, and so that- so 
Joan has come around to ask for some ingredients and and Marjorie sent her away. They've had kind of an angry interaction where Joan curses the work that Marjorie's doing. The scene ends with Marjorie sending Jack over to Joan's house because she wants her bowl back. She had previously lent Joan some eggs and now that Joan's being so mean, she wants the bowl back. So Jack goes over there. Alice, uh, um, Alice and Susan are having a conversation and Jack happens upon this conversation. And Alice is, you know, saying, well, you can go talk to my mom. And Jack says, well, hold on a minute. Um, he says, I've brought something. He gives her some apples. She says, thank you. And then he says, out of the blue, am I not handsome enough? Is that it? Yeah. <laughs> so it sets up and really a brilliantly concise line. Immediately we know, right? If all you had was that line, and the, the previous scenes of the characters to know who they are and what their relationship is, you would immediately know, oh, he's been trying to sleep with her and she's been saying no. I mean, that's what am I not handsome enough? Is that it? Communicates so well and so concisely. And so she they, they go back and forth a little bit. She does not want to sleep with him. He, she says, you have a wife. And he says, I'm no good to my wife. I can't do it. Not these three months. It's only when I dream of you. Or like now talking to you. And we don't at that point know what he's talking about. It's these, I can't do it. Not these three months. It's only when I'm talking to you. Only what? Alice interrupts him and calls for Joan and ends the conversation pretty quickly. But there's something set up that there's some problem going on. (laughs) You can infer what it is. I mean, he's, yeah, he's having, he's, he is, he is attracted to Alice and only Alice. Um, and uh, he, 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 goes, he goes as far as to go to Ellen to try to fix the problem, right? Like he's, <laughs> this, this is the interesting, I think this is one of the really interesting parts of this play um, is how much Jack and Marjorie go to Ellen for things when they're trying, in, in her capacity as a uh, cunning woman or a witch-like person. Um, he uh, goes to her to try to get her to blame Joan for being a witch. Like, I think that's just a really interesting dynamic throughout this. He goes to Ellen, though, to try to get Ellen to get Alice to give him back his ability to have sex with his wife. Um, and, 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 and in, he believes that kind of, if he can get Ellen, this person who he believes is a witch to talk to this other person who he believes is a witch, that he might get something out of it to his benefit. Yeah, it is interesting that in a you know they're so concerned with witchcraft, but they're going to someone who they perceive has some sort of supernatural power to deal with this problem. And it sets up, I think, or it's the result of probably more descriptively, it's it's the result of the fact that this begins with their selfishness. It does not begin with a concern about the evils of witchcraft or how witchcraft is damaging the community. Because you're, if that was their beginning point, going to Ellen doesn't make any sense. But that's right. not where it begins. It begins because Jack and Marjorie are having some hard times. Their cattle has died. The, the butter won't churn. Apparently, at one point, Marjorie, they actually see this scene. She sees Joan's Tomcat, the name, the title character of the play, weirdly enough, yeah. Vinegar Tom, <laughs> run through the barn, and that causes her to have some sort of a pain. But, uh, you know, Jack has had some ET, some erect, or some ED, some erectile dysfunction. Um, there's, she's been cursing. There's all these terrible stuff that's gone on between them. And in, 
I think, a really, really nice scene. Jack and Marjorie are wondering, why is all this happening to us? And Jack says, what is, and am I not a good enough person? Am I not good enough? Am I too sinful? And this scene comes just on the heels of us seeing him try to have an affair. Mm-hmm. And that, I think that there, there's just this beautiful complexity in that. That, you know, you could say, well, Jack's just despairing about all the terrible things. But I think there might also be this level of him truly despairing that he might be too sinful. He knows what he's doing is wrong. Am I, am I, have I done so badly that I brought this down on my family? Mm-hmm. And and yet still like that's that's kind of what he does in private, but we don't what he the actions that he do does kind of reflects his need to cover that up, to to uh blame others for his problem and throw them under the bus rather than kind of dealing internally with what's going on. That's because Marjorie offers him an out. She says, yeah. Well, no, it's not that you're too sinful that God's punishing you. That's not it. We don't really have any reason to suspect she knows about his attempted affair with Alice. Who knows how she would have responded to that had she yeah. known, but we don't think she does. And so she says, No, 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 no. It's not that you're so sinful. You're a good man. You're a good person. If, but if it's not that God is punishing us, then what's the other explanation? It's that the devil is attacking us, it's witchcraft. Mm-hmm. It's based in this kind of idea that, you know, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. And so, you know, once you go down that path far enough, if you believe you're a good person and bad things are happening to you, what, you know, there, there must be someone to blame for it. And so the, 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 the line she says is, you know, people who are good people are bewitched. There must be witches among us. Um, and that, that begins the kind of the the roll down towards the eventual trial and uh, witch hunting that goes on in the town. Well, and to hearken back to the Crucible again, of course, there's a very similar beginning of the accusations of witchcraft in the Crucible. It's mm-hmm. based in the problems of these interpersonal relationships that cause people to do selfish and harmful things. And so given the, the theology, the concerns, the power structures of the time, it's a very easy weapon to lean to to accuse someone of being a witch. And that becomes a real weapon that you can brandish against people that you dislike, that you're in conflict with. It can become a moral justification for yourself. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, absolutely. It kind of, it, it, it feels good to like kind of believe that and thus be empowered. And so you lean into it even more and, uh, and blind yourself even more to what, uh, what could be going on inside of oneself. So we've, we've talked a lot about the plot and there's a lot more to talk about. There's so much packed into what is actually a very short play. But we probably need to shift our focus a little bit to some of the dramaturgical technique of the play because it's so fascinating. This is a, a really Brechtian scripts in a lot of ways. We've talked a little bit about theater of alienation and, and then the music plays a really prominent feature too. So we've described that these songs are separate from the action. They're contemporary music performed by contemporary people out of character. They're breaks from the plot of the script. Jackson, I'm I'm interested in your perception of this music. You're obviously much more of a musician than I am, and not to talk about the music's actual music because you just write that for your own production, but what's your sense of what what these musical lyrics and placements lend to the story? Yeah, I think so. So uh, on my first read through through this play, I was looking at it and I was like, gosh, I don't know. Again, there's no stage direction that uh, 
that shows you that um, these are necessarily a song. You have to do a little bit of extra reading. The, the script does if you just read some of the notes and stuff. But my first time through, I was just reading it blank and was like, okay, so th this is really open. Maybe someone comes and speaks them or something. I think, though, it, it, is, it is an essential choice to sing these. I think singing these songs that are in the play connect it to us. We've already talked a little bit about the anachronistic nature of allowing modern music to influence these songs and not have them be, um, you know, shanties or folk tales or something like that. I think it's, I think it's really important for those kind of jarring anachronisms to happen with doing a modern song because all of a sudden it personalizes it. I think that's what this music does. The words certainly are, some of the songs are just straight up written from our, our modern perspective. Um, one of them is Lament for the Witches. One of them is uh, uh, Evil Women, which is the, the last line of the play, which kind of just talks about talks about uh, media's portrayal of women. It talks about movie screens in one in one part of the, one lyric of the song. So these songs are definitely not in the script and sung. There's there's uh there's still something I think in us as humans that resonates to something sung. And when when that happens in a in a script, a we've already talked about how it it takes us away from the drama of the moment. But then also something in us resonates and it connects on a different level. The first time I went and listened to one of these songs on YouTube versus just reading it, I was like, oh, now this play makes sense. I, I get the, the emotional rawness of this play and how it connects to the modern context of the civil rights movement, for instance. So... So that that's part of what I'm what I like about them being songs at least is that kind of speak to your question what you were asking? Absolutely it does. And you know, a very most basic understanding of the Brechtian philosophy of theater is this idea that we, as an audience, we do not want, ultimately, it's not good for us to be swept up in the emotional journey of a play and just watch a story. We need to be able to reflect on what we're seeing and make decisions about our own lives and our communities. And, and Brecht would say that's where some of the power of theater comes from, to inspire real change in our communities, but only if the audience is able to reflect reflect on what they're seeing and connect it to their experience, which doesn't happen if you're emotionally swept along. So these musical breaks serve to break the audience out of the action of the story first, and that's all over Brecht's scripts that he wrote. But then the additional choice to make them contemporary music, sung by contemporary people, it does force you to say, this is not something from 17th century England where the play is set. This is something from me from us, from our community. The, the, the piece that I described that I think was done by Duke University, uh, the song that was sung by, the, by this actor in what was mounted to sort of the smoky bar room and a guy at a, a microphone and a piano was the song Something to Burn. Mm, and this mm -hmm. song comes right at the end of Jack and Marjorie figuring out that this must be witchcraft that people are using against us. And they, they decide they're going to burn a calf to try to ward off the witchcraft. And then the song break comes before a different set of scenes. And, and listen to the lyrics even just from the first verse. What can we do? There's nothing to do about sickness and hunger and dying. What can we do? There's nothing to do. Nothing but cursing and crying. Find something to burn. Let it go up in smoke. Burn your troubles away. I mean, Oof. that song has some, po that's powerful, painful imagery. 
And it would be one thing for the characters to sing that powerful, painful imagery. Then it stays in the world of what we're seeing. But to have somebody unconnected to the story in our time sing those powerful, painful words, suddenly it causes you to go, I, there's a connection there. There's a mm-hmm. connection between what I'm seeing in the story and me in the world. Yeah, and I think Churchill just uses these techniques to mastery. We've 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 talked about them before in Mad Forest, and so I hope you hear the through line of Churchill's excellent use of these these theater tactics to to bring out responses from people and in in a time when theater this is getting a little theater history, so forgive me for wandering down this road, but when theater had a real impact on culture, theater, people could go to a play and it would ripple through a community, ripple through conversations. Carol Churchill uses these tactics to to argue very strongly, uses the the music, the resonance with the uh, with the themes of the day with the music to tie it into this analogous story that she's telling based, you know, hundreds of years ago. So I, I want to end our time, Jackson, by talking about the last scene of the play, which relates directly to what we've been talking about. I mean, the last scene is very Brechtian, very, and it's, it's totally separated from the rest of the story. The story yeah. as we know it, the, seven, the story of the 17th century witch trials and Alice and Jack and Marjorie and, and the mother Joan ends with a scene where Joan and Ellen, the cunning woman, have been hung. And Alice, and as a result of the witch trials, didn't even talk about the guy who is like the witch hunter who comes to town and tortures these women right, into yeah. whatever. So we, I know that we've skipped a lot, as we always have to do. These conversations <laughs> are only so long and plays are amazing. Um, mm-hmm. But so that, that story ends with Susan and Alice standing in front of the the hanging bodies and Alice holding on to this idea that she's not a witch. And then there's another song break called lament for the witches. You brought that up earlier, Jack. And then scene 21, the final scene of the play is totally different. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's two, um, it's two theologians, uh, who have written a book. I'm trying to find the title of the book. They're professors of theology. Um, they've written, there it is, Melius Malefacrum, which is the hammer of witches. So, yeah, they're, they're theologians, like you said. Carol Churchill suggests that these two men, they're very, they're definitely men, they say, should be played by the actresses who played Joan and Ellen, the witches who've just been hung. So yeah. I guess I I mean there's multiple choices. I'm a I'm a huge fan of the idea of having the dead bodies of Joan and Ellen <laughs> just unhook themselves from the noose and put on a new costume. <laughs> right, saying. right. But I don't know that that might I, I I've never directed the piece, but I'm interested in that image. But yeah. Um, uh, so anyway, these two these two men describe why women are more likely to be witches. This is the last scene of the play. Two men yeah. we've never met before who've written a book on witches telling us why women are more likely to be witches. And why are they more likely to be witches? Oh, there's just so many bad reasons. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's awful. It's terrible theology. It's terrible reasoning. It's stuff like, um, uh, so she was formed from a bent rib and so is an imperfect animal, a defect of intelligence, of inordinate passions. They brood on vengeance. Uh, they wreck civilizations. 
<laughs> just like what a wine fest. And it, um, it, it kind of culminates in this this sentence. And and the way that these two men speak is very back and forth. They just exchange lines. So I'm just gonna read it straight through. Just know that this sentence is broken up between the two characters. This is kind of how their rant ends. To conclude, all witchcraft comes from carnal lust, which is in woman insatiable. It is no wonder there are more women than men found infected with the heresy of witchcraft. Yeah. Like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the la- that is the last beat of this play. Well, that, like, not quite, because there's another song. That's true. There is a song afterwards which adds some context and maybe a little bit of grace, or or not grace, but like uh, uh, anthem to the end of the play, (laughs) (laughs) rather than leaving as angry as that last part makes you. The final song is so cool. It's called Evil Women. So it's sung on the back of watching two women hung for a crime they didn't commit. Actually, Joan does say she's a witch. I don't think we're ever meant to believe she actually thinks that. I think it's a result, you know, her reaction to the power of the men that they have over her. Anyway, um, they're hung for this crime of witchcraft. Alice and Susan might be hung. They don't know yet if they're going to be hung. That's where their story ends. Then we see these men come on stage and tell us about how women are so full of carnal lust that it makes them witch. And how sexist that is. And then the song Evil Women comes. This is the refrain. Evil women, is that what you want? Is that what you want to see? On the movie screen of your own wet dream, evil women. Yep. That, I mean... I think that's, again, tying it back, this is what we're leaving the theater with. We talk about retinal images sometimes at the end of a play. What do you close your eyes and and see as you leave? I think this is what you hear at the end, is kind of two men declaring the... uh, the uh, shortcut, their perceived shortcomings of women, and uh, this response, this song at the end, this—I'll say it again: this this anthem at the end of the play, taking us out, and and kind of asking the question, like, you know, what what are you going to do? What are we going to do about this problem? I I think you're right on that. This is an anthem. You know, I I don't know. I've never directed. I've never had an ensemble do the piece. But I would be shocked if the ensembles who've done Vinegar Tom haven't found themselves really rallied by this this song at the end of the play. Because the lyrics of the song make this connection between men's sort of internal sexual desire, perverse desire for bad women for this picture of an evil woman and how sexually exciting that is, at least according to the song. And that that, then they make women into evil women. So it relates the sufferings, this accusation of women as being evil that these two theologians make, ultimately to the power that men have over women in the society of the time. And then, of course, because the play is commenting on our own society, in our own society. I mean, you know... Again, I haven't done it, but I can only imagine that I would have all the women of the play come forward and sing this anthem about where all this comes from. Because the, this, the song Evil Women is about what the women in the play have suffered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't tie it up neatly at the end. It doesn't bow it. It's just it just states the facts, and you're left to kind of assume or infer the the uh, the uh, the righteous judgment of that line of thought from from the uh, from the lyrics of the song. 
Yeah, like here's one of the verses, just to, to give one more example of how this song adds to the end of the play. They sing, did you learn you were dirty boys? Did you learn women were wicked to make you burn? Satan's lady, Satan's pride, Satan's baby, Satan's bride, witches were wicked and had to burn. Yeah. So on that note, powerful stuff, (laughs) powerful stuff. This play is filled with powerful stuff. And there's a lot of stuff we didn't even get to. There's some aspects of the theater of cruelty that is in this play. The torture, there's torture scenes during the trial, just, just straight up torture scenes. Um, so, so there's lots more to talk about in this play. And sadly we are out of time. So if there is more that you want to talk about stuff that you like about this play, stuff that we didn't get to themes that we didn't pick up on, we'd love to keep having this conversation with you. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter with the username at NoScriptPodcast and also our Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts, experiences in this play. If you've been in this play, I think you've heard from our conversation that we'd both like to, you know, direct or be a part of this play at some point. So if you have any cool uh, instances of that, we'd love to keep having this conversation with you. I just loved this play. I loved getting to experience it. I'd really love to keep talking about it. So I hope you will follow up with us and let's keep having this conversation. If you like this episode or any of our other episodes, please share it. Share it with your friends just verbally or over text or whatever, but also share it on your social media. You can find the episode and your friends can find all of our episodes at Google Play, Spotify, Podbean, or Apple Podcasts. Or you can also just find a link to the new episode every week on Facebook on Mondays. Please be aware that the end of the season is approaching. We will take a short (laughs) break and we'll be back with season four. Information on that is forthcoming. So keep your eyes out. Yeah, but until next week when we're talking about another play, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks so much. This is No Script. We'll see you next time. See ya. See ya.